Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Let's bow our heads and pray. Jump into the lesson today. Heavenly Father, we come before you as blood-bought sinners. We remain sinners and yet come into the presence of a holy God. We thank you and praise you for this contradiction that is nonetheless true. And we pray that you bless us for the next little bit as we learn how, uh, how your son made it possible. In his name we pray. Amen. So we start out this morning. We're going to be looking at, if you picked up an insert on your way in, you know we're going to be looking at chapter 11 of the Westminster Confession. We've been working through one chapter, uh, one chapter a week for the past couple of weeks. Well, for the past 11 weeks, to be precise. And today we come to justification. It is time for the salvation uh, that we've, that's just been introduced to become personal. That's what we'll be discussing today. Before we turn to that, however, I want to read something completely different. I'm going to be reading from the, uh, the prologue to, the, to Homer's Iliad this morning for a little bit of an outside perspective on our topic for today. The evil goddess of discord, Eris, was naturally not popular in Olympus, and when the gods gave a banquet, they were apt to leave her out. Resenting this deeply, she determined to make trouble, and she succeeded very well indeed. At an important marriage, that of King Peleus and the sea nymph Thetis, to which she alone of all the divinities was not invited, she threw into the banqueting hall a golden apple marked for the fairest. Of course, all the goddesses wanted it, but in the end, the choice was narrowed down to three. Aphrodite... Hera, and Athena. They asked Zeus to judge between them, but very wisely he refused to have anything to do with the matter. He told them to go to Mount Ida, near Troy, where the young prince Paris, also called Alexander, was keeping his father's sheep. He was an excellent judge of beauty, Zeus told them. Paris, though a royal prince, was doing shepherd's work, because his father Priam, the king of Troy, had been warned that this prince would someday be the ruin of his country, and so had sent him away. Paris's amazement can be imagined when there appeared before him the wondrous forms of the three great goddesses. He was not asked, however, to gaze at the radiant divinities and choose which of them seemed to him the fairest, but only to consider the bribes each offered and chose which seemed the best worth taking. Nevertheless, the choice was not easy. What men care for most was set before him. Hera promised to make him lord of Europe and Asia. Athena, that he would lead the Trojans to victory against the Greeks and lay Greece in ruins. Aphrodite, that the fairest woman in all the world should be his. Paris, a weakling, and something of a coward too, as later events showed, chose the last. He gave Aphrodite the golden apple. That was a judgment of Paris, famed everywhere as the real reason why the Trojan War was fought. We live, we do not live in such a universe as defined here. One of the great benefits of reading the Iliad, whether you picked it up for pleasure or were forced to read it in high school, is that Homer spends, it writes an epic poem um, laying out a very different universe from ours. It is a universe uh, driven by the whims, the vanities, and the caprice of the gods, and their interaction with mankind is, uh, is full of all these things. The, go- the gods and the goddesses manipulate men and women on earth. Men and women on earth manipulate the gods, try to placate them, try to get them off their backs. It is a, it is a universe defined by, uh, by transience and uncertainty. 
rather than by justice and truth. If we lived in such a universe as what Homer wrote about this morning, we'd not be sitting here quietly, uh, sipping our coffees and learning about justification. Justification would be the least of our concerns. Instead, we'd be railing at the heavens, trying to figure out how we'd get this or that divinity off our backs today. This or that god or goddess who was mad at us for some reason and was plaguing our crops or ruining our businesses or closing our wombs, it would be, uh, we'd be trying to, we'd be up here this morning trying to slaughter the best of our flocks uh, to satisfy the gods. But that is not the God, that is not the God we serve. And that is not the universe we've lived in, which is orderly and just and lawful. He is perfectly just and righteous, the almighty God that we serve. But that in turn creates a new problem for us, as we've seen over the last 10 chapters of the confession that we've been looking at. For while our God is just and true and perfect, we are anything but. So in his presence, we, uh, we have proven ourselves to be over and over again to be wicked and unfaithful. And that's the background for why, uh, that's a, and that's the background that we come, to, come into chapter 11 of the confession, to learn about justification, what it is, and above all, why we need it. In chapter 10, last week, we looked at God's effectual call, and today we're going to look at what that effectual call is beginning to accomplish in us. So if you open up, your, um, open up chapter 11, we'll read the first section of on justification. Those whom God effectually calls, he also freely justifies, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone, nor by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto them, they receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves, is the gift of God." So as usual, with every introduction, to, uh, with every start to the chapter of the confession, there's a lot to go through. But let's try to keep it simple this morning. If somebody asked you today about to define justification, how would you put it in your own words? What would be the short version about what God has accomplished for justification? Any thoughts on that? Just as if I've never sinned. Just as if I've never sinned. Yep, that's how God views us. That's right. Greg? Hmm, declared righteous. Based off the works of Jesus Christ, that's right. All right, because righteousness is still required, isn't it? Let me read you a different, let me read you a different definition of justification. That not, this is not coming from the confession. Justification has been merited for us by the passion of Christ, who offered himself on the cross as a living victim, holy and pleasing to God, and whose blood has become the instrument of atonement for the sins of all men. Justification is conferred in baptism, the sacrament of faith. It conforms us to the righteousness of God, who makes us inwardly just by the power of his mercy. It is the its purpose is the glory of God and of Christ, and the gift of eternal life. Does anybody notice a difference between that and what we just read for the confession? There's a key, there's, there's at least one key distinction there that we should know. Mm, inwardly righteous, that's right. 
It says, conform, uh, conforms us to the righteousness of God and makes us inwardly just by the power of his mercy. That line is from the Catechism of the Catholic Church and is drawn almost, directly, almost verbatim from the Council of Trent that was uh, laid down in 1547. The Council of Trent was the, main, uh, was the main output of what we know today as the Counter-Reformation. I was doing some reading on Catholic sources in preparation for this lesson, and, it's, and as if I didn't know it before, it makes it very clear, this issue of contention remains, uh, remains very contentious between Protestants and Catholics. If you study most of the writings of the Protestant Reformation, this was the issue, uh, the main issue of dissension. Uh, the section on the Protestant view of justification is almost longer than the, than the section on the Catholic uh, in their analysis. Uh, because this, because when Luther, when Luther took issue on this with the Catholic understanding of this doctrine, that was where the battle lines uh, were, true, were forever laid in the conflict. So the great Rome does not teach that the elect are justified by works, as many Protestants think. Instead, they teach that righteousness is poured or infused into our hearts. We, in other words, we have a part to play in cooperating with God's righteousness. Think about it this way. Imagine that, um, imagine that you are in debt this morning. Imagine that you owe, you, you owe some, some outrageous figure, let's just say a trillion dollars. You owe a trillion dollars, and you, can't, you have no hope of paying it back in your lifetime or indeed multiple lifetimes. You are hopeless. Now imagine for a moment that someone comes along and decides to pay that debt on your behalf. That would be wondrous. You'd be back to zero. But that's not, uh, but that's not what the scripture teaches about justification. Instead, uh, instead what, uh, what we are told is we, are not just, we don't just have our sins take away in Christ. Instead, we have his righteousness given to us. So it's like our negative balance of a trillion dollars is brought back up to zero, and then another trillion dollars is added back on top of that in Christ. But in justification, it's not, to further the analogy, it's not our money, it's Jesus's, it's Jesus' righteousness, and we are an, we are an account, and we have access to the account, if you will. In Roman Catholicism, um, before God declares his righteousness, then he takes Christ's righteousness, and he basically stuffs it inside our heart and our soul in some way. And then he looks at Chuck Fultz and says, ah, Chuck Fultz is righteous, I can save him. Does that make sense? Let's back up. Yeah, Bob. Makes sense in the yeah, yeah, right. It makes sense in how it's wrong. But it's very, but it's a very, it's a, I'm going to go over it again because it's a subtle distinction. And when, honestly, when you read uh, Catholic commentators on this subject and on very many of the same passages we'll look at this morning, uh, it's easy to get confused very quickly. Romans 4, 1 through 8 says, What then shall we say? That Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and was credited to him as a righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. 
Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. So remember our problem. Remember the problem that we've seen well established in our previous studies. We, serve, we live in a universe governed by a just God. We have fallen, we have fallen from our original righteousness, our original innocence, and now in rebellion against his justice. As a just God, we rightly deserve his wrath and punishment. But the Lord was not pleased to leave it that way. Of his own free grace, he sent a substitute. He sent his son to become man and, become, and to become the head of a new and perfect covenant in which we participate. So now the question is, is what does, how does a man dying on a cross, uh, dying on a cross affect us? Part of it, it's mediated through the covenant, but how do we receive it? We receive it through the effectual call. What do we receive? That is what, justifica- that is what justification is answering. Going back to our, our, our earlier controversy, for the Roman Catholic, what we receive is Christ's righteousness. We basically recruit, we receive a pile of Jesus' righteousness, and it's infused into our souls. And on the basis now of our righteousness, then God, uh, then God uh, forgives us. Now, does anyone see a problem with that right off? I mean, other than, you know, contradict Scripture and other minor details. Um, do you see, what, what is the problem? You know, let's say all of us in here are elect. We've all received this this pile of righteousness, if you will, poured into our hearts. What's the immediate problem that comes to mind? We still, who said it? Yeah, Nelson, we still sin, don't we? We probably did this morning. So how, what, where is this righteousness in effect? And so the Catholic Church is well aware of this problem. So they say, okay, so in baptism, you are justified. When you were first baptized, you were justified. Your previous sin is taken away. Your heart is now just and perfect before God, except you can still sin. Uh, and so now when you sin, if it's serious enough, if it is what they call a mortal sin, then now your justification is lost. <laughs> oh, that's awkward. How do, you get, how do you get it back? So you get it back. So thankfully, that's why the church exists uh, in their view. Because they have all these storehouses of grace to restore justification in the heart uh, in the heart of Christians. So you'll go to your priest, you'll confess your sins, he'll establish some penance that you have to do. You go and partake of the Mass on Sundays or Saturdays or Fridays or Thursday evenings or, you know, whenever your schedule allows. Um, you'll have, you know, you have, you know, you have five additional sacraments in, compared to the lowly two that Protestants have. In other words... You can, there are methods for getting your justification back. You receive justification baptism, then you immediately lose it. And then you go back to the church and you get it again. And then, of course, you're probably going to lose it. And you go and get it again, and back and forth, back and forth, this thing goes. It's interesting. It's not that uh, this is ominously similar to what Arminianism teaches about our faith as well. As we sin and repent and have to return, and we are justified and then not justified and then saved and then we're not saved. Back and forth and back and forth it goes. Now, that is not the way, but that is not the way that God views us truly once he justifies us. Luther, uh, Luther wrote, and the Catholics hate what he said to this day. Luther wrote um, that our, what did he write about our will? Our will is in bondage. Our will remains free, and yet our will remains free on its own, 
but it is tied to our natures, our sinful fallen natures. We are not able not to sin. So he says, um, so he says there is nothing in us that can reach out and take what God offers. There is nothing in us uh, but wickedness. And so what God does instead is through his covenant, he takes Christ's righteousness and he imputes it to us. He does not infuse it, he instead imputes it. He instead credits it to our account. Hence the financial analogy from earlier and its, and its helpfulness. It is instead a legal declaration. God looks down from heaven at Andrew Dion and Nelson Edwards and Chuck Fultz and everyone in here and sees not our sins, which remain, but instead sees Christ's righteousness that's been applied to us and received by faith alone. And it's from this that the great clarion call of the Reformation arose, justification by faith alone. Now, the, the, the Protestants were even, as, were even more aware of, of the Catholic criticism than we would. And that's the reason for section two, because what they, because they, immediately, they immediately have to face the same problem that we just laid at the Catholic's door. So we, God looks at us, he sees Christ's righteousness, and yet we continue to sin. And so this has led Catholics to critique Protestants for saying that salvation is superficial, Justification is just laid, kind of smeared on the top of our sinful, of the sin in our hearts that remains. And so the writers come in section 2 of chapter 11 to address this. They write, Faith, thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness, is the alone instrument of justification. Yet it is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces, and is no dead faith, but worketh by love. And here we have that age old, that problem we've seen since the start of the confession. The divines, the writers of the confession have a very hard time staying on topic because as soon as you talk about one attribute of God or one aspect of salvation, then immediately all the others rush into their mind. And here, and here is just the same. They're looking ahead to, their to the future chapters on sanctification, chapter 13, and good works in chapter 16. And they're given a little teaser for what they're going to discuss in more detail. But they're, doing it, uh, but they're doing it to answer that objection. But what about our sin that remains? What happens to that? We need Christ's perfect righteousness to be justified. And we receive it through faith. We receive it simply by believing the promise that God has made, that all those who come to him shall be saved. And, and it is enough for us to simply come and believe him. Because the only way we can do that we don't, even have, we don't even have the will. We don't even, our will is not even capable of that simple work. Uh, even that faith is given to us as a gift. So now, however, that faith never comes to us, uh, that faith never comes to us all by itself, as it were. That faith is not just professed, it is, all, it is possessed. It's a faith in our hearts that changes everything about us. Uh, many things change in an instant. Many things require a lifetime. And yet, that faith is efficacious. Writing, uh, James, writing in James chapter 2, comes, uh, comes back to Abraham, just as Paul did, writing in Romans, as we read, uh, read from Romans 4. James writes, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith 
was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. This passage and the one in Romans and others like it have, uh, have created our own controversy uh, within, within the Christian church, within Protestantism in particular. Um, Luther, in particular, wrestled with this over and over again. Because you remember, when he discussed Christ's righteousness imputed to us by faith alone, he said this is an alien righteousness with his word. This is something completely outside of us that we nonetheless benefit from and receive through faith. And then he said it is, has nothing to do with our works. There's nothing that I, Martin Luther, or any of us can do enough to merit this grace. But then he, turned, he would turn to James, that epistle of straw, as he dubbed it. And he would read this and think, wait a minute, is James, is James disputing what Paul's already written? Are the scriptures in conflict with one another? Should we throw this book out of the canon? Um, because, uh, because James is making a very strong point that works are inseparably linked to our salvation. But he says it, but he, he shows, James shows his heart and his concern there in the very last sentence we read. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. James is looking at the same Christians that, uh, James is looking at these new Christians that Paul was speaking to when he told them how they came into the church. And he's looking at them and saying, make sure you're not just professing a general faith. Make sure you're not just professing the faith claimed by the church. Make sure you actually know what it is in your hearts. And, you'll, and, beca and because if you have it, then it will change who you are uh, what you not only what you believe, but what you think, say, and do as well. He was concerned about those in the church who professed the faith without actually possessing it. And both points are critical. Works cannot save, at least not our works, only Christ. Works cannot save, only faith. Yet such a faith will never leave the sinner unchanged. This also speaks to... Um, this also speaks to the nature, of the, the nature of the church, in case you haven't noticed, is really bound up in this debate as well. Because notice what happens, to, what, what the church becomes in the Catholic view of justification. These poor, hapless Christians are floundering around, justified one minute, unjustified, and wallowing in sin again the very next instant. Um, and, you know, what's going, Jesus, the baptism they received is only good once, basically. And now they have this whole life of uncertainty as they try to pursue keeping their justification. And who holds all? And you know who holds all the solutions to coming back? The church. And so, in this way, the Roman Catholic Church made its made herself instrumental in the work of salvation. She was the necessary partner with God in keeping Christians not only in the church but in the kingdom. In other words, whereas what we see not only in Protestant teach in Protestant understanding justification. But in, you know, in the apostolic teaching as well, is the church is the fruit. It is the outgrowing of the justified, of the community of the justified. It is all of those. Uh, it is all of those who have been justified now come together in Christ with one another. We're going to talk. The confession will talk more about the church. Uh, one of the one of the errors that has grown out of uh, a misunderstanding of justification is that we don't really need. The church that it's just me and Jesus and that's all we need 
Um, the confession will go on to say that outside of the church, there is ordinarily no possibility of salvation. But that's not because, but that's not because the church is a source of salvation. It's because Christ is, and He calls His people into the church. So in that way, in that way, our works, uh, the works are not what save us, but they are the, what are given to us to do together once we are saved. I hope you realize this morning, this, no one, uh, there's no, if you go into a Roman Catholic church, if you walk into a mosque this morning, or a Jewish synagogue, or any of our so-called sister faiths, if you're in a Buddhist temple this morning, or a, or a Hindu temple, you will not hear anything like this doctrine. You will be told that there's something you have to do to be saved today. Whatever, however salvation is defined, however, uh, however it's understood, you get right with God or the gods or karma or nirvana, whatever it is, there is something that you will have to do this morning. It's only here in Christ church where you will hear that you are a sinner, that you are incapable of saving yourself, but come to Jesus, he has done it all. Everything else wants to put something on man to do. We're reading, I'm pulling from all kinds of crazy sources this morning. I was reading the uh, Quran last night, Surah 27. I do not regularly do this, in case anybody's wondering. Surah 27.7 says, Those who believe and do righteous deeds, we will remit their sins, and we will reward them according to the best of what they used to do. And yet this is true of every other, every other counterfeit faith taught. There is something that we have to do. But the scripture comes to us and said, there is nothing we are capable of doing. We are utterly lost and hopeless. But Jesus has paid it all. Praise God. As we turn to section three of this chapter, um, remember, remember where we started today. Remember, it's back, we're back in this orderly universe run, operated, um, created and maintained by a just and righteous God. Remember the problem. If, if, we were to, if we were to live in the universe of the Iliad, of Greek mythology, we would be uh, run with the universe run and overseen by unjust and capricious deities. That universe would be uninhabitable. Uh, it, would be, it would be misery every moment. And yet, on the other hand, sinning against a just God, such as we have, is equal, uh, should be equally unforgivable. And so to, uh, considering that conundrum in section 3 of the, of the Confession, uh, the divines wrote, Christ, by his obedience and death, did fully discharge the debt of all those that are, just, are thus justified, and did make a proper, real, and full satisfaction to his Father's justice in their behalf. Yet, inasmuch as he was given by the Father for them, and his obedience and satisfaction accepted in their stead, and both freely, not for anything in them, their justification is only of free grace, that both the exact justice and rich grace of God might be glorified in the justification of sinners. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The, um, 
if you've never noticed those little words in italics in your New American Standard Bibles or, or other translations, uh, you should know that those words in italics are words that are not in the original Greek and Hebrew of the scriptures. They are words added by the translators to help clarify the meaning a little, a little further. They're clarifying words that bring help. And sometimes they're very helpful, and sometimes I feel they kind of soften the impact of these words. If you read, uh, if you read 1 Corinthians 5.20, where it says, He made him who knew no sin, it's, it literally is, He made him who knew no sin, sin, on our behalf. Christ not only took on our sins, He became sin. That's how completely He took on all the consequences of what He had earned. And in that way two things were accomplished. Our problem was solved because the penalty for our sins, not just the ones we've sinned up to this point this morning, but every sin we will ever ever commit was taken and paid for by Christ on the cross. And so now it is possible for us, unjust sinners in a just God's universe, to be reconciled to him. And at the same time, God's problem, if it were, if I may use it uh, for lack of a better term, God's problem is also solved because he has, not, he has not lowered himself one iota, his justice one bit. God, he has, he has been, Jesus has been humbled, but his righteousness is perfect, and God's justice was completely satisfied with what Christ did on the cross. And in this way, he is both the just and the justifier of those that believe in him. My favorite passage on this is from Psalm 85. Starting in verse 8, the psalmist writes, I will hear what God the Lord will say, for he will speak peace to his people, to his godly ones, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. God's righteousness is fully satisfied and on display for all the world to see, and we enjoy it in peace. Rather than burying his righteousness judgment, we get to enjoy his right we get to enjoy his peace this morning. Now here's a question. When were Here's a question to think about this morning. When were you justified? If you think about it, some of you, some of you in here would have a pretty good idea of when this act happened, um, and others of you would not. But justification is a one-time act, it is, and it is applied in time. We were, it's applied to those who were eternally chosen before the foundation of the world. We'll talk about, um, we've talked about, we've touched on election already, Predestination is the foundation of salvation, but it is not accomplished, but it is not complete salvation on its own. God's justice must be satisfied and must be applied and that satisfaction must be applied to each individual sinner in time and in space. So think about it. For myself, uh, I can remember uh, I can remember I can remember laying in my bed awake late one night back in 1997, if memory serves. And his best, and that was the night I had uh, I had been struggling with assurance and what it meant to be a Christian um, for uh, for months up to that point. Not proud to admit it. I'd actually at a few youth conferences and events. I'd actually gone forward to an altar call. Uh, it's not a very Presbyterian thing to do, 
but I was struggling in my own heart, and the emotional, the emotional pressure of that uh, hit me very deeply, and I went forward. And I kept doing it over and over and over again. And so I remember that night uh, in tears, just calling out to God and saying, Lord, I cannot save myself. I have no hope but what Jesus gives to me. And I can't tell you that all of my struggles with assurance ended that night. I can't tell you that I never, I certainly can't tell you I never sinned again after that moment. But I can tell you um, that my walk with the Lord changed from that moment on. His word, uh, his word was opened up before my mind. I began to understand what I'd simply just been reading before that point, and um, and I and I, my walk with him began to grow closer and closer and closer. Now, was I justified in that moment? I don't know. That's of the Lord, or was I simply was that me responding? Uh, that was certainly me responding to uh, resp- responding to his justification. So that's as close as in my mind. I know when that happens. God knows. God's the only one who truly knows. And the rest of us simply can see the effects of it after it's happened. Yes, Bob. Surrender is a key, but it wasn't my surrender that saved me. I surrendered because God already had. Um, that's what. That's what. That's why God, that faith has to, had to be given to me as it is to everyone else in here. Yeah, but surrender is a good word. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what the effectual call is all about. C.S. Lewis wrote. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. There's a lot of applications and insights in that, in that. but one of the things is, even if we don't know the moment that, that Christ's righteousness was applied to us, we've seen the effect, we can see the effects of it ever since. So whether you know the moment of yourself, whether you can point to a day or a time as a moment of your salvation or not, you can know, one of the ways you can know that you are his is by, uh, is by, your, uh, is by the, what you've done and how you've walked with him since that time. That's brought you here this morning. Can anyone else point to a time or a moment when they remember a change in their walk with Christ? about when we are actually justified. Um, yeah, there is debate. But I think, uh, I think the thing is that, that Christ, you know, I think we see in Christ's work, it wasn't enough for God simply to promise that Christ would come. It was not enough for, um, the work was not complete when he chose those who would be saved. Christ still had to come and die in a specific moment in history. Now, that was efficacious through all of history, even for those who had preceded that. 
Um, but no, I tend to think that there is, there is a moment in our lives when Christ applies, when Christ's righteousness is applied to us. Um, and because it's done once for all, and then affects everything else we do, and then affects everything else we do. I think that's, and I think that's uh, where, I think the moment of salvation is rightly tied to that act. What's that? <laughs> exactly. So in section four, all that was just an introduction to this. God did from all eternity decree to justify all the elect. And Christ did in the fullness of time die for their sins and rise again for their justification. Nevertheless, they are not justified until the Holy Spirit does in due time actually apply Christ unto them. Paul writes in Romans 8, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. I love the contrast between this passage and the chapter's confession. As tight and concise as the confession has been, here the Holy Spirit writes it even more briefly. Those whom he predestined, he also called, and these whom he called, he also justified. And that is a decisive act, decisive, definitive act in each of our lives. And I love, I love the mingling of the temporal and the eternal in all God's plans. Our salvation, our salvation was established for each of us before time itself even began in the mind of God. Indeed, I often like to reflect that before we had, before we had even sinned in our first parents, uh, before, not only before we, any of us were born to commit a sin or to bear original sin, but before that, when our ancestors, when the very first man and woman sinned, before even that, before sin was even an issue as far from an earthly perspective, God had already decided on whom he would save and who would be his own. Um, so that's how, that's, that's just how, uh, that's the foundation of our salvation in all eternity. Yeah, Sarah.
Yeah, that's very helpful, Sarah. Yeah, I'm glad to know I'm not the only one. We, I think we, I think, uh, I think we err when we overemphasize the certainty of God's salvation to our children without first teaching them the need. They have to know they need Christ. Um, but that's the first thing they have to know. Yeah, April. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. And that was the passage that my dad, that my dad was sharing with me, you know, before I, before I, you know, had that, had that night, that sleepless night where I finally realized, yeah, that's what, that's what applies to me. So I could have just read Ephesians 2 and we could have been done with the Sunday school lesson in five minutes. But, you know, I'm trying to draw this out and make sure you get your money's worth. Ephesians 2 writes, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And that's pretty much that's pretty much a summary of everything we've discussed. And, and, note, and, note, and going back to Sarah's point, note the order. Sin, we have to understand sin first. And then, sal- and then both the need and the glory of salvation becomes clear. All right, we are very short on time. Let me go through this uh, very quickly. Section 5. There you are. Where'd you go? God does continue to forgive the sins of those that are justified, and although they can never fall from the state of justification, yet they may by their sins fall under God's fatherly displeasure and not have the light of his countenance restored unto them until they humble themselves, confess their sins, beg pardon, and renew their faith and repentance. This is, again, this is, uh, this is looking ahead to chapter 12, which we'll talk about, of adoption, our adoption in Christ. We, when we sin now, we do not lose our justification as the, Catholics, as the Catholics would have us fear. We still, Christ still looks at us, or God still looks at us and sees Christ's righteousness, and yet we still sin. What happens then? Well, what happens then is what we do with our own children. When they sin, when they fall away, we, rest, uh, we, restore, we seek to restore our own children. And God does that perfectly with us. When we run away from him, he, gather, he lovingly and sternly, when he has to, gathers us back into his care. And then finally, in section 6, it says, the justification of believers 
under the Old Testament was in all these respects, one and the same with justification believers under the New Testament. The, uh, the, what, the, Westminster, the writers of the Westminster Confession, they didn't even know what, uh, what dispensationalism was when they wrote this. It was a concept yet to be invented. And they still, uh, they still managed to dismantle it uh, in various parts of the Confession. As they write here that, how was Abraham saved? How was Moses saved and Miriam and, and all the believers of the Old Covenant saved? Same way as us, resting in faith in Christ. Galatians, we've, we've, we've been hearing from Abraham uh, throughout this, so we need to end with him. Galatians 3 writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Have he become a curse for us? For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Amen. Amen. Let's pray and prepare for worship. Lord God, thank you for this day. Thank you for the justification perfectly bought by Christ. But we thank you that salvation did not end there. He did not simply prove it could be done or vindicate himself. But now that treasury, that wealth of grace is each of ours if we simply have faith in the promise once made. Lord, we come and we acknowledge our love for our Savior this morning. We pray you prepare us to sing his praises in Jesus' name. Amen.